One in our study there. Matthew chapter 5, and we want to look at verses 27 through 32 this morning. Lust, adultery, and divorce. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts as we study together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew is Christ the King. We are in that section in chapters 5 through 7. The pronouncements of the King, proving his judicial right to the throne, as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. A major theme in the Bible is about the coming kingdom. Everything in redemptive history is moving towards the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. But the kingdom needs a king. And biblically, the God-ordained king of the kingdom must meet certain prophetic qualifications. And as we have noted, these are all fulfilled perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born the king of the Jews, the promised messianic deliverer. He came, as he entered into his public ministry, he came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came presenting the kingdom. Well, the basis for entry into the kingdom, if you're ever going to see the kingdom, is you have to repent. That's why he said, repent for the kingdom's at hand. He was presenting, he's the king presenting the kingdom. But in order to go into the kingdom, you must repent. And for his kingdom people who do repent, whose ultimate destiny is the kingdom, Christ then presented how they should then live as kingdom citizens. In effect, Christ's Sermon on the Mount presents his kingdom ethics, which is to be characteristic of his kingdom people. Christ came to fulfill the law in the sense that he came to empower his people to live out the spirit of the moral law as found in the law of Moses. The key principle that governs the entire Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5.20, where Christ says that unless a person's righteousness exceeds that of the legalistic righteousness of the religious leaders, they will by no means enter the kingdom. Kingdom living is all about living according to this righteousness standard presented by Christ. This is what defines his kingdom people. The point is that true repentance results in a changed heart that then demonstrates itself in righteousness in the life. In essence, the the righteousness of kingdom living really corresponds to spirit-filled living in the day in which we live. Uh, Note this connection. Matthew 5.17, Christ says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, there's different levels that we could talk about, and we have talked about this in weeks past. But I want to connect that he came to fulfill down to the idea of righteousness that he's emphasizing in verse 20. He came to fulfill the law in a deeper sense that we might live according to the deeper spirit of the law. Uh, not just the outward legalistic technicality, but that our hearts might align with the truth of the righteousness that is found therein. And that's what he's talking about here. We are in that section on the, 
in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, which is often called the, the sixth antithesis, because all six sections begin with some variation of Christ saying, but I say to you. Here Christ explains that what they had been taught about the, the mere, mere external emphasis of the law is to have a deeper corresponding internal spiritual reality. And we note these uh, six subjects here. Uh, we dealt with this last week, uh, murder and anger, adultery and divorce, that's what we're looking at today. And then, of course, oaths, uh, vengeance, and love for enemies. But today we're talking about adultery and divorce. And what Christ is saying is really, as far as his kingdom ethics, there's a deeper standard related to the issue of sexual immorality than we really have presented in the law. In the first bracket, we saw that Christ uh, dealt with the issue of murder, showing it involves the deeper heart issues as revealed in anger, contempt, and cursing. These, at root, are heart issues related to the issue of murder. Well, today in our study, Christ shows us the deeper heart issues related to adultery and divorce. You know, frankly, if Christ hasn't uh, changed your sex life, uh, you're probably not his disciple. Changes your whole perspective. You know, the whole world is given to immorality out here. It's what defines the world. Christ's disciples are different. Kingdom ethics are different. Christ shows us that these issues potentially relate to every one of us, no matter our station in life. And so we pick it up today, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Well, this is an accurate accounting of the seventh commandment. As found in Exodus 20, verse 14, and also Deuteronomy 5.18, which simply said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is a specific sexual sin regarding marital unfaithfulness. It is to be sexually unfaithful to your marriage partner. God ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman till death do them part. As ordained by God, marriage is to be for life. The sexual union denotes the two shall become one flesh. But marriage is more than just merely a sexual union. Just because people have sex does not mean they're married. In the eyes of God, when people get married, God performs a spiritual union in which he joins them together. In Matthew 19, 6, Jesus said, What God has joined together let not man separate. This is God's doing, and it is not to be separated by man. Thus, marriage is an act of God. God is involved, and that makes it very serious. Now, what makes marriage to be marriage, biblically speaking, is that it is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Now, contracts are made between people, but a covenant relationship brings God into the equation. A covenant relationship is one in which one makes a binding commitment before God and thereafter is accountable to God for it. Malachi in the Old Testament, Malachi 2.14 says, Yet you say for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. No, the Lord is a witness. God's in this equation. With whom you have dealt treacherously. He's coming down on them for not dealing 
properly with their wives. And he says, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. To make a covenant in the Old Testament literally meant to cut. To cut a covenant. You see, the people would cut animals up and make an aisle formed by the dead animal parts. The parties to the covenant would then walk between the bloody pieces of animal, signifying, if I don't keep my part, may God cause this to happen to me. It's a graphic illustration. So uh, just remember, uh, in the Old Testament, the idea of uh, making a covenant was to cut a covenant. This is the language of Genesis 15. When God made a covenant with Abraham, in that case... God was symbolized by a burning torch as he alone made his way through the bloodied animal pieces, signifying a unilateral covenant commitment on the part of God. It is also the language of of Jeremiah chapter 34. In Jeremiah 34, the context is this. The Jews had been living in sin in that they had wrongfully been using fellow Jews as slaves, which was forbidden. They supposedly then repented. Oh, we're sorry, God. And they made a covenant commitment that they would not do this anymore. But then they reneged on the covenant commitment and reverted back to their old ways. And here is what God said about that. Jeremiah 34. 18 through 20. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant. Notice God takes it very personal. My covenant. The covenant you made with me. Who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me. When they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. There's the idea. The princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. You see what God's saying? You didn't keep your covenant. You made this covenant. You're going to die because you were unfaithful to this covenant commitment you made before me. So a covenant was a sacred binding commitment. Which one was responsible to keep before God on pain of death for violation. It was for this reason that under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. Leviticus 20 verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I mean... Black and white. Very clear. Now, relatively few seem to take marriage very serious today. It is seen more as a contract before men rather than a covenant before God. The problem is there is so little fear of God, even among those who profess to be Christian. Having no fear of God describes the unbelieving world. To fear God is to reverence Him. It is to take accountability Seriously, especially covenant commitments. Now, if one truly fears God, that should be and will be reflected in the life, especially in the matter of sacred binding covenant commitments. 
having a fear of God sees marriage in reference to God. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 describes last day's apostasy in which people will be full of themselves, in effect, and yet have a form of godliness. They will still profess, but live lives that deny God's authority or power in their lives. The King James says in 2 Timothy 3, 3 that they will be truce breakers. Others translate this as unforgiving, irreconcilable, or unappeasable. People will be covenant breakers who refuse to be reconciled. In practical reality, they have no regard for God and therefore refuse to forgive or get right. Having no fear of God, they will break covenant and have a spirit of being irreconcilable. Verse 4 says people will be traitors. They will think nothing of betraying a trust. Yet in spite of it all, they will still claim to be Christian, having an outward form of godliness. Such is consistent with last day's apostasy. And I am convinced we live there. Uh, What Paul describes as perilous times, in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, adultery is serious because of how it violates the innocent party. But even more importantly, it is deadly serious because it violates a covenant commitment Made before God. God is the major one offended here. Remember in context, Jesus is addressing disciples who have a relationship with God. Now the Jews did have respect for the seventh commandment on a physical level. They just had developed a few loopholes. That's what we'll talk about. Uh, They had figured out ways to get around the legislation regarding uh, adultery. Uh, I mean, you could lust all day, right? As long as you never actually committed physical adultery, you're okay. You haven't actually done it. I mean, don't commit adultery. I, ha- I, haven't, I haven't done adultery. <laughs> Sit there, you know, eyes for my neighbor's wife. I haven't done it. No, no, I'm, I'm innocent. That's where they were at. Jesus had something to say about this, and he did, verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her, In his heart. How's that for a higher standard? Jesus said it's not enough to merely refrain from the actual physical act of adultery. One must also abstain from even lusting after a woman in the heart. Jesus Jesus takes it deeper into the realm of the heart. True, one is commanded not to commit physical adultery. True, that's true. But beyond that... Jesus says to even lust for a woman who is not your wife is to commit adultery with her in the heart. Before God, one is guilty of adultery long before the actual act takes place. Even the desire to have sex with a woman, not your wife, is to be guilty of adultery in the heart. So the real deeper issue is that of the heart. Now, many years ago, I worked with, this is before I was even saved, I worked with a guy who was flirtatious with a gal who worked in the office at my place of employment. And uh, during break time, this gal would often come back to the lunchroom where they would flirt back and forth. He was married, she was married. Now, he had a form of religion. This guy was very religious. I think he went to church all the time, you know. But he said to me one time, he said, if I could just have sex with her one time, well, according to Jesus, he was already guilty of adultery in his heart. 
even though they hadn't actually done the actual deed. The Jesus standard is a heart standard. The law forbade the act of adultery. Jesus forbids the desire. A major problem for the whole of society is that pornography is everywhere. I mean, we are a porn-saturated society. And the Bible says the lust of the eyes defines what the world is all about. Proverbs, that book of wisdom says, hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. It has been well said, you can't help the first look, but you're accountable for the second look. True. But the problem today is that society more and more holds us right in our face all the time. It's a constant thing. That's not an excuse, but it, I think it is pretty much a reality in a lot of ways. If you use social media at all, you are susceptible to this issue. You're going to have to deal with it. So how can we live a life pleasing to God in the context of a pornified society? Let me suggest just four quick points here by way of application. I guess that's right. Sorry. Okay. Psalm 119. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jerry Bridges said, God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence of our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. There you go. Want to have victory? Fill your heart, your mind, your life with the word of God. That's how you're going to have victory here. You say, well, I don't think I need to spend time in the word. You better do it day by day. Saturate your life with the word. And if you're not going to do so, I don't see how you're going to, to withstand the onslaught of sexual temptation, which is on constant parade. Number two, stay close to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 15, 16, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He's talking about the issue of temptation. And we're talking about sexual temptation here. And so he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When's that time of need? In the time of temptation. Number three, be intimately involved in the fellowship of accountability with God's people. Hebrews 10 says, uh, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We see apostasy, uh, and we see the day approaching. Pressures are mounting. Uh, temptations are... How, how do you combat that? You need the body. You need the body and so much more as we see the day approaching. And finally, my fourth point here is non-existent. No, there it is. Uh, Romans uh, 13 and 14. Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. Note that. Not in lust. Not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So the fourth point is, make no provision for the flesh. The Bible calls us to holy living. 
Pure religion before God is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James 1.27. Our very sanctification, what sets us apart, is to live lives of sexual purity. Let us not be conformed to the world, but rather constantly be renewing our minds with the word. Sanctification not only has to do with deeds, but also with our thoughts. Uh, Really, uh, out of the heart come the issues of life, as it says in in Proverbs 4.23. Was the culture becomes coarser and coarser, let us grow closer and closer to God and his children. Warren Wearsby shares the following story. We visited... Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. I was impressed with the maze of tunnels and the dense darkness when the lights were turned out. When we got to Pulpit Rock, the man in charge of our tour gave a five-word sermon from it. Quote, stay close to your guide. For these dark times, that is good counsel indeed. Don't wander off into the dark by yourself. Stay close to your guide, the good shepherd. It's the only safe place to be. Verse 29, boy, how can you follow that up? Well, Jesus does with some of the strongest words we have in the New Testament. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Wow. Immediately on the heels of saying, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in the heart. Jesus says, immediately then... This, he makes this exceedingly strong statement about the eye. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now, the elders will be up here after the service to assist you. I know it's going to be a long line. We've got patches. Anyway, this is a radical statement, though, is it not? Requiring radical action. You can't be passive when it comes to the lust of the eyes. It requires drastic action. This is the only way one can have victory over it. Essentially, all commentators believe that Jesus was here speaking in hyperbole or exaggerated terms to make a point. And sometimes the Bible does use this kind of language to make a point. For example, in Proverbs 23, 2, it says, And put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Now, it's not saying that you should commit suicide, but rather figuratively saying that uh, the person should take drastic measures to ensure that he cuts back on how much he eats. It's being stated in, in a figurative way. If lust is truly a heart problem, which Jesus has just indicated it is, then the answer is not found in a physical solution such as gouging out the eye. And even if you do gouge out the right eye, you still have the other left eye to contend with. As someone has said, then you're just left being a left-eyed luster. And if you gouge out both eyes, you still have the thoughts of the heart. And right there's the fundamental problem that Jesus has zeroed in on. Jesus is using figurative language to emphasize that a problem with lust must be dealt with in a very decisive and drastic manner. In terms of application for believers, what Jesus is saying here is very close to the emphasis Paul made in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, where he says, Therefore put to death your members. Now he wasn't talking about church members. He's talking about members of of your body. 
which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now it's interesting. Notice he says, put to death your members. Uh, Put to death is very strong in the Greek. It means to kill decisively or resolutely. It means to slay utterly. There is to be no negotiation or dilly-dallying here. This means to kill outright. Go for the jugular. Severe measures are required. Paul speaks of your members which are on the earth in a metaphorical way. Really, he is speaking of the sins committed in conjunction with various members of the physical body. That's what he's talking about. We are to stop the body dead in its tracks when it comes to these particular sins. In effect, we are to kill sin at the root in terms of our practice. These sins are not to have any place in our members. And this is comparable to what Christ said here in Matthew 5. When he said to pluck out and cut off. The essential idea is to radically deal with sin that wants to work its way out into your life through your body. By our will, with God's help, and always with God's help, Hebrews 4.16, we must respond resolutely to the lust of the flesh that would seek to use our physical body for illicit purposes. I heard of a dog trainer who teaches dogs to be absolutely obedient to their master. And his method goes like this. When he begins training a dog, he will command it not to eat a piece of meat and then throw it down in front of the dog. And of course, the dog immediately gobbles it up. He will then beat the dog. Not cruelly or abusively, but sufficient for training. As he repeats the process, the dog learns to associate pain with eating the meat, contrary to the orders of the master. And so the dog will come to realize it cannot look at the meat or it will capitulate with resulting pain. The dog learns the secret of obedience is not to look at the meat. If the dog looks at the meat, it's over. The dog learns not to even look at the meat until the master says it's okay. What a great illustration. We cannot look or we will fail. When it comes to sexual temptation, the Bible commands us to flee. Don't look. If one flirts with the enticement of looking, they will most likely suffer the painful consequences of failure. Joseph ran from sexual temptation and thus kept his purity. Samson did not run and therefore stumbled. The allurement of sexual sin is so powerful that we must flee from it if we are to be victorious there can be no negotiation the flesh craves to look but just like the well-trained dog we must realize we cannot even look or we will fail the warning of jesus is severe to make this point this certainly applies in terms of a strong application to the life of a believer however however having said all of that I'm really speaking in terms of application now to the believer. But however, in light of what Christ goes on to say, when he says, For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. I think he is probably saying something even more basic than merely giving a principle related to sanctification. He's talking about salvation from hell here. Talking about hell. Gehenna is the Greek word. 
which ultimately has in view the lake of fire, which is where the lost will suffer for all eternity. Bible knowledge commentary, since a lustful heart would ultimately lead to adultery, one's heart must be changed. Only by a change of heart can one escape hell. Only through repentance can one escape hell. Howard Voss says, the holy restraint is true Christian asceticism. Of course, what really has to happen is a change of one's heart in his inner self. A regeneration or new birth if he would escape being thrown into hell. This is what I think Jesus is ultimately saying here. Unless one comes to the place of true repentance, which is really a radical response to sin, which alters the course of one's life, then they're headed for hellfire. Remember the new covenant? We're under the new covenant as believers. Remember that new covenant that Christ came to make possible? is all about being changed from the inside out. Jeremiah 31, on which uh, you know, we base new covenant truth, and there's details there that will be ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom in relationship to Israel. But Jeremiah 31, 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are now in new covenant relationship with God. We're saying we have been changed from the inside out. There's a fundamental change that happens in relationship to repentance and faith. In a figurative way, Christ is emphasizing the necessity of a radical repentance that fundamentally alters a person. This type of thing happens in conversion. It is the experience of every true believer... Paul talks about the circumcision made without hands, which is radical spiritual surgery brought about in the heart by God, Colossians 2.11. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. He's exhorting us to walk in the Spirit, to be obedient. But but, uh, he also says this in Galatians 5.24. And those who are Christ, these are people that belong to Christ, those who are Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This relates to the response of repentance and saving faith. The results in the execution of the flesh. Or what he says, the crucifixion of the flesh. There must be a death to the flesh. This death happens in conjunction with repentance. That is why John the Baptist told the wicked religious leaders to go and bear fruits worthy of repentance. The idea is that genuine repentance will bring forth the fruit of a changed life. In the case of the New Testament believer, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Repentance marks a line that we cross over, which denotes a radical break from sin and the flesh in terms of its ruling power. I think this is principally what Jesus has in view here in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. And it's completely consistent. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom. And then he says this, such were, he didn't say such are, such were some of you. You're not in that category anymore. You've had a life altering conversion. 
Such were some of you. Not that you can't fall into that sin as believers. You can fall into any flesh sin. There's still a danger there. But it's not going to define your life. It's not going to be the ongoing pattern of your life. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The end of the book, Jesus has some really serious warnings where he says, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murders, sexually immoral. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. Very plain. Those that live like this, they're not going to heaven. They're not going to the kingdom. Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates, into the the golden city, the new Jerusalem, the city of the saints. Outside that realm, they're not coming in. Outside are the the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murders, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Remember what Christ said in verse 20 in our study in Matthew 5. Unless your righteousness exceeds the external righteous standard of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless we know a fundamental change of heart called repentance... That affects the whole of our life. We will not see the kingdom. This is really radical stuff. Which so much of Christendom today. No longer takes seriously. Instead we've cultivated. What I call a deplorable doctrine. A damnable doctrine really. Of easy believism. That says you can believe and and have it not affect your life. That is straight from the pit. As far as I'm concerned. It's a grave mistake that has hellish implications as taught by Christ. And he continues, verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The eye is presented as the medium through which temptation comes. And the hand is presented as the medium through which sin is committed. What is required is a radical repentance that affects the heart and the life. And of course, if it really affects the heart, it will affect the life. Heart and life go together, which is the overall point here in context. No, Christ did not say, taper off, rather, cut off. Remember how Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more in John chapter 8. He didn't say, I I, I know, I know, I'm I'm a sensitive person. And I know that you have a long-term addiction here. And she did to sexual sin. And this is going to take a while. Certainly requiring professional help. No, he didn't say that, did he? Immediately, he said, sin no more. Pluck out. And cut off involves a decisive, life-changing response. As indicated in true repentance. And that's what's being illustrated. As John the Baptist would say, true repentance brings forth the fruit of repentance. And it does so immediately. Now, of course, even true believers continue to struggle with sin. And we can fall back into sin, even grow sin. We see this in in terms of the, the, the whole balance of Scripture. But there is a decisive change of mind in conversion that forever changes a person. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are coming. You now have a brand new nature. I'll tell you one thing. You cannot sin and enjoy it. And you cannot sin without consequences. God will discipline you. Conversion does not result in perfection, but it does change the direction of the life. John Phillips says, the eye generates the desire, the hand generates the deed. So Jesus, in effect, said, don't look and don't touch. The Lord was not telling us to cripple ourselves, but to control ourselves. And really, in graphic terms, saying, you must take drastic action. Called repentance. And as we have noted, only by way of repentance and regeneration can this happen in a person's life in a way that generates a righteousness that affects the heart and thus exceeds that of the Pharisees. This is really a powerful piece. I quote it. It's uh, from a sermon by Al Martin. The, the truth is, is now to be known. And he wrote this. He said this. Oh, the madness. You are a vile, filthy, helpless, hell-deserving, wretched son or daughter of Adam. You know nothing of true repentance and therefore of true and saving faith. Oh, yes, once in a while you take a dull parry knife and scratch your hand and occasionally you scratch around your eyeballs. But you haven't begun to cut off and pluck out. You better listen to the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. But he who does the will of the Father in heaven. If you by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. If you live after the flesh, you'll die. The cross does not give us a minor shift or two with regard to a few of our ethical and moral religious values. The cross radically disrupts the very center and citadel of your life from self to Christ. And if the cross has not done that, you are not a Christian. My friend, face it. Young rogue, you're not a Christian until the cross has radically disrupted the very center and citadel of your life. And brought you from a life of commitment to serve self and the flesh. Whether it's religious self, moral self, proud self, covetous self, lustful self, prideful self, unforgiving self, lazy self, it doesn't matter. What are the focal points of the reign of yourself? If you've gone to the cross in union with Christ, it's been shattered. I want you in that day when you stand with me before the judge of the world to have him say, come you blessed, come you blessed. I want you to look, I want to look at you standing there. I don't want to look at you standing there and saying, Lord, 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 I named you in earth. I named you before the elders. I named you before the church. I named you in prayer meeting. I named you in witness. And Lord, now Lord, Lord, did not I this and did I not that? I don't want to hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. You were never made a doer of the will of God. You learned enough and you learned what to say properly enough to be accepted for what you professed yourself to be on earth. But now the day of judgment has come. And the truth is now to be known. Exactly. Jesus is saying that adultery is not just a physical issue, but also a spiritual issue of the heart. True believers have come to true repentance, involving a radical response to sin that forever alters their life. Now, we still have the flesh and we still have the struggle. Yep, that's true. But there is this issue of true repentance. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife 
let him give her a certificate of divorce. It sounds strange to us, but in the Jewish culture, in the Old Testament, it was the men who did the divorcing. As we move into the New Testament, we find that either the man or the woman may initiate divorce, as seen in 1 Corinthians 7. But in the Old Testament, it was the men who initiated the divorce. And when they did so, they did it on the basis of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When he talks about here, this certificate of divorce, this is where it comes from. Deuteronomy 24. And we read there, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she, has, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, she has departed from the house, she goes becomes another man's wife. This is what we're talking about. This certificate of divorce. Now in the days of Christ, there were two schools of thought uh, regarding the grounds for divorce and remarriage based on Deuteronomy 24. The uncleanness spoken of here, sometimes translated as something indecent, this had to be something short of full-blown adultery because that required the death penalty. As seen in Deuteronomy 22, 22. Perhaps the husband accused uh, the wife of being flirtatious or immodest or something like that which stopped short of actual adultery. Some uncleanness, not defined, something indecent. It remains a mystery as to exactly what it is because it's not specifically clarified. A footnote here. Interestingly, Jesus referred to the certificate of divorce in Matthew 19. And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, permitted it. So clearly what they demanded as grounds for divorce was not in keeping with God's intention. And note this. While it is true that looking with lust on a woman is the equivalent of adultery in the heart as seen in verse 28. Yet that is still distinct from the actual act which alone is grounds for divorce as brought out by Jesus in verse 32. Uncleanness, which comes short of actual adultery, is not grounds for, uh, for divorce, as Jesus goes on to emphasize both here in verse 32, as well as in chapter 19. Warren Wiersbe says, Jesus is not saying that lustful desires are identical to lustful deeds. And therefore, a person might just as well go ahead and commit adultery. Or that on that basis, they have grounds for divorce. The desire and the deed are not identical, but spiritually speaking, they are equivalent. You know, God alone is the judge of the heart, and what we hold people accountable for are actual actions. We are not the thought patrol, and if you think you are, you have really arrived at Godhood, and you haven't. That's God's domain. Jesus here clarifies the divorce before God is justified on the basis of actual sexual immorality alone. Now, the liberal school of thought, which was followed by Rabbi Hillel, uh, held that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason whatsoever. For example, if she burned his supper, he starts writing out the certificate. If she's not as pretty as she used to be, uh, if the man wanted out of the marriage, he, he, he had this wonderful little loophole given by Moses of all people. He could get out of it. He'd find some indecency. All he had to do was write up a certificate of divorce. 
and move on. The other school of thought was more conservative, and it followed Rabbi Shammai, which said that the only grounds for divorce was adultery. Both schools of thought were based on their respective interpretations of Deuteronomy 24, but Jesus, in this case, agreed with the conservative school of thought. And so he says, verse 32, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, whatever the reason, for any reason, except except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Understand what Jesus is saying. He was saying that before God, there are no grounds for divorce other than the grounds of sexual immorality. That's it. We know from 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 that the Lord gave instruction regarding the marriage of two believers. He didn't address a mixed marriage in which one is a believer and one is an unbeliever, which Paul then did go on to address in 1 Corinthians 7. Jesus was addressing the marriage of two believers and said that in that context, there's no out. There's no biblical grounds for divorce other than immorality. And Paul uh, recounts this. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, Now to the married I command. He's talking to two believers. Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if, even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Still the husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. God does not allow two believers to get divorced. And even if they do divorce, which is not God's ideal will, then they can either live single or be reconciled. That's consistent with Jesus. Biblically, they have no other options. You say, but, 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 no buts. That's what Jesus said. Before God... For two believers, marriage is till death do us part. You're locked in. Now Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15, he goes on to address a mixed marriage of a believer and an unbeliever and says if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, then the believer is not under bondage. And I would agree with the view that says where the Bible allows for divorce, it also biblically allows for remarriage. One other thing, you can't change the past. When you get saved, you go from where you are. If one is in Christ, is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. You go from where you're at as a new creation in Christ, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9. But again, Christ in the Gospels is addressing the marriage of two believers in the covenant community. And he says divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality is not permitted. The Greek word translated here, sexual immorality, is the Greek word pornea, from which we get our English word pornography. This is a broad word which can refer to any form of sexual immorality that is a violation of the marriage covenant. In the case of sexual immorality, divorce and remarriage is permitted, but it's not commanded. The best case scenario is that there would be repentance and forgiveness and that the marriage could yet be saved. But still, sexual immorality is grounds for divorce, as so stated by Christ. But if a man would divorce his wife anyway, without the grounds of sexual immorality, 
then he would be accountable for causing her to commit adultery. Note that up to this point, she is not guilty of adultery. That only happens after she is forced out by the husband and becomes sexually involved with another man. The thought is that the woman is forced out. And remember, in this culture, she really had little or no recourse. Even to survive, she would be pressured to find a man to take care of her, which would inevitably, probably, result in adultery. That seems to be the sense of what Jesus is saying. In this case, the man is liable for putting her into this position that results in her committing adultery. Note, God still saw them as married in his eyes, and therefore this is called adultery. Even though he wrote the certificate out, he said, well, she got the certificate. Yeah, God's seeing this a little different. Because of the action of the man in divorcing his wife without biblical cause, he is shown to be the one essentially accountable. He forced this issue. He is the cause for her committing adultery. And in this case, Jesus says, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced, yeah, she's got that certificate of divorce, but whoever marries her, commits adultery. Why? Because in the eyes of God, she's still married to her husband. Again, this is a situation where an unbiblical divorce between believers took place. There's no biblical grounds. In God's eyes, they're still married. And to marry this woman is to commit adultery. Ed Glasscock says, this points out that a certificate of divorce does not necessarily end the marriage. But improper sexual conduct does justify the dissolution of the union. Well, Christ made it very strong, did he not? Yeah, he did. For two believers, there is no way out of the marriage other than the grounds of immorality. Kingdom ethics sets a very high standard. And the marriage bond in God's eyes is unbreakable for two believers apart from sexual unfaithfulness. Some time ago, a Christian writer, which I will not name here. I'll send it out with my notes, but I won't name her. But... uh, This Christian writer, best known for her number one New York Times bestsellers, divorced her husband and then announced that she was dating again. And not only that, this time it was a woman she was dating and then proceeded to marry. She is known as the ultimate confessional writer. She writes about the messiness of life and how people feel. She is thought to be real, raw, and authentic. Thus, her confessional style serves to really normalize sin. Here's the pattern. Sexual sin is first minimized, then it's normalized, and finally, quote-unquote, Christianized. To go soft on immorality is to go down the path of apostasy. If we are truly Christ's disciples and kingdom citizens, the expectation is that we will maintain a high view, a biblical view of sexual purity and covenant marriage as ordained by God. The Bible still says, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Will God help us as his people to live for and stand for what is honorable before him? Let's stand and have our closing song.